Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello? Hello? Hello, hello, hello. Hey. Oh, fucking Denny Lane. It's the Birmingham BBC Home Service. <laughs> <laughs> how are you, sir? Not too bad. You know, getting ready for this tour. It's a bit uh, doing interviews all the time. <laughs> Other yeah, than right. that, I'm in good shape. How are you? Did you have a nice Christmas? Yeah, I suppose. Quiet. You know, same old, same old. Um, what are you up to? What, you're interviewing one of our friends and heroes, a guy named Danny Lane. You ever hear about him? <laughs> never heard of him. He'll never make a comeback. By the way... <laughs> Denny, do you know what? that I am working with um, Alex Jules and uh, Ben Lacourte? I think you know those guys. They're in your band, right? I know. That's such a... Well, we, I just said, what a coincidence that is. I mean, well, obviously, yeah. here's a weird part. Alex is working with the monkeys. <laughs> That's right. About that? Hey, it's too small well, yeah. of a world for my liking. Yeah, I know. How are yeah. you, Chris? I'm good. I'm good. It's a little chilly here in uh, Evanston, but uh, and snowy. Sure. But it's you know it's that time of year. You snowy. Know. Well, you know I'm yeah, a little be, bit. I'm gonna be there. Oh, next. when are you gonna be? In Chicago. Yeah, Evanston. Um, That's where they are. The eighteenth is when I'm gonna be in Evanston. The eighteenth. Yeah, an Italian restaurant. Yeah, of course. Oh, it's an Italian restaurant. Do I'm doing a solo show at this. Rock and ravioli, she says it's called, and it's it's oh. owned by the owner of uh, the the Kaida Theatre. It's like a club, I think. Like a speak. Okay, he's got one because that place in St. Charles was where I saw you a couple years ago, and that was pretty cool. Was that somewhere by maybe? I think it was about two years. Yeah. Oh bloody hell! Life's got too quick. Yeah, well, that was Ron's, of course. That's his upstairs at Speakeasy. Well, he's got another one now, apparently, in Evanston. So. So there cool. you go, and that's what I'm doing. I'm doing the Ikeda the night before, and then I'm doing that one. I don't know if you're going to come. Well, that's awesome. I don't have to drive out to St. Charles this time. I can <laughs> I can stay home and oh, see you. But the St. Charles thing's going to be with the band. It's going to be the, ah. you know, it's going to be the Moody Blues album and the Band on the Run album. But it's, I see. I don't know. It's up to you, but you know, if you do want to, that come, sounds worth seeing. Put your name on the door. Okay, I actually would like to check those out then. Awesome. Right. So it's not just the same show two nights in a row. No, it's actually... No. Yeah, it's just, okay. Oh, with the band, yeah. Where okay. are you, Rob? Are you in Chicago? I am actually at my parents' house. We snuck in briefly, and then we're going to New York. <laughs> okay, well, I think I know what's going on. Far away, boys. All right. Oh, yeah, I can probably do, like, an intro. Or, um... This was a pretty cool, like, Joe Rogan podcast kind of intro. Maybe we'll keep it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I love that, too. Welcome to Take It Away. Three minutes or whatever. <laughs> How many minutes we're in? Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. 
So Denny, I'm gonna I'm just gonna start asking questions based upon what you were saying then. So am I to understand that you're gonna play all of Band on the Run and then all of the Magnificent Moody's on tour this yeah. year? Is that what you're doing? Well, that's the show I'm gonna be doing, yeah, in in the in the Saint John uh, Saint Charles and Everson where you are. It's it's not, you know, like a tribute band. It's it's gonna be like modern versions of the songs but yeah the two albums starting with the moody's one which is the first album i was ever you know on and then um it's a magnificent moody's actually because it's based on the british version of that album and uh right and the same with the band on the run we're doing the british release of that one i think that's just less one song or something like that but anyway yeah, yeah without helen wheels yes but if we do an encore, you never know. We could stick that one in. But the idea is to stick to it, the simple stuff. And the Moody Blues album is going to have a couple of the Moody Blues prior singles in there as well. Because, you know, you know the Moody Blues thing is out on the box set now. So there's like 30 songs yeah. on there. So at 50th some, anniversary, right? Yeah. So I'll be, I'll be able to pick and choose songs from that instead of just doing the simple the solo album. But... But anyway, that's the general idea. We do two albums and about another half a dozen songs of, of mine. You know? Are you going to be doing any rearrangements of these or reinterpretations, sort of different from the originals? No, they're not that different. But it's, I'm just saying that because, you know, tribute bands copy note for note, but we don't do that. We, mine is a much more sort of up-to-date version of those songs, if you like, with obviously some right. of the Got original, it. whatever. But, you know, I'm saying, I mean, like, I've got the band boys singing some of the songs, and they're not trying to sound like wings, if you know what I mean, you know. It's it's just a different approach to the songs, that's all. A bit more modern, really, a modern approach. So. And then, what of your songs are you going to be playing? You said you were playing some of your own songs as well. Like, you're going to play the album, and then you're going to do some of yours. I'm only going to do about four or five of my, you know, I'm going to do like Say I Don't Mind, which obviously was one of my songs, the string band. And then I'm doing another song called Wish You Could Love, which features all the boys in the band playing solos. And that's off a Hometown Girls album that I that I had. Mm-hmm. But then the other stuff's going to be, you know, Time to Hide, um, that kind of thing, you know, from the, the stuff, Deliver Your Children, stuff from Wings, stuff that I did. But it's going to be, you know, we don't have to do too long of a show, so it depends. I mean, if somebody wants us to play a few more songs, we can. But that's going to be the, the sort of nucleus of the show with those two albums. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. You were asking the Facebook group a little bit about deep cuts. I, I think it would be pretty fun to hear some things like from Arlene or more from Hometown Girls or something like that. Well, you know, my idea is that I'm revisiting all those albums and learning a lot of those songs because of me having to, well, do solo shows, you know. So yeah. when I do solo shows, we've got some of them lined up. They're kind of up, they're calling them management's calling them up close and personal shows, whereby I will be telling more <laughs> stories. Yeah, I mean, it's been done, but I'll be telling more stories about the songs, and I will be featuring a lot more of my songs going back in like a like a you know a documentary of 
of the sort of career, I suppose. But yeah, Very so good. I want to learn as many of those older songs. So if somebody shouts out from the audience, I I would know them, you know, because I mean you've got to really learn a lot of that stuff. Yeah, it's really difficult. It's really difficult trying to play like you used to play. <laughs> sure, right, sure. <laughs> it's true. You play it differently when you learned other ways of doing things. And in those days, it was just the raw whatever you could, you know, you'd learnt. You, you you weren't that good. You just had a few little bits that you knew, and that's what you stuck in everything. But nowadays, it's a bit more sophisticated. It's hard to relearn it as you used to be. That's just as well, too. It, it You know, the new version might as well reflect where you are now, you know? Absolutely. That's what it should do. And as I say, you know, there are bands out there that go out and play them note for note, and that's all very well. You know, if you want to have a good night out doing that, but but that's not really what I'm I'm all about. So, you know, like I say, I've got great musicians. You might as well use them to the extent that they can, you know, throw in a few solos and do this and that, and just and add then, a little bit more to yeah, it. That's all. You've great musicians, really great musicians in your band. Those cats can play. Oh, I know. Yeah, you better believe it. These are the guys who played on the <laughs> Meant to Be single? Yes, it is. Okay, great. That's a great sounding band, Denny. Yeah. Well, two of those guys were from the original Peter Asher band. But in actual fact, the drummer, Steve Aho, has, has got, got married and moved to, um, to, to Europe somewhere. So he's not going to be on this show, these shows. We've got another drummer, Ben LaCour, as you know. And um, so, and yeah. yeah, but it's a really good little band. And, you know, the thing is, they're all nice guys. That's the main thing. It's not like hard work. It can be hard work if, you, if you're playing with strangers and you don't really know them that well. Yeah. They kind of get to know these guys and they're all very, very good fun. You know, you know what I mean? Yes. They've got a lot of enthusiasm. And, uh, and it's, it's inspiring, really, playing with people like that. Whenever dark shadows come out of the blue I got to ask you because we have the new box sets, the new Wings Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway box sets, which you know I know Chris has has checked out. I've listened to all the music. Are you going to be playing anything from those box sets and your sets? No, no. I mean, there is a song that we 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 could do if people because one of the songs on that box set is one of my songs. It's called "I Would Only Smile," and it was recorded during the Red Rose Speedways days, of course, with Henry and Denny yeah. in the band. And uh, it's a song that was never released, so they're sticking it on this on this box set. So, Well, a lot of people love that song. Yeah, I'm sure people I would love to hear that. Yeah. But there you go. It's uh, I will eventually, um, you know, play a lot more songs. I mean, it's all down to doing this solo thing because the more songs I know, and if people call out a song, even if it's a Wings hit or whatever, I can play a piece of it or tell a story about the making of it. You know, it's more like an educational thing where you can 
talk about everything you've been involved in. So yeah, as I say, you've got to learn as much material as you can. It's a lot of work, but it's fun. You know. Well, I know that Chris and I would like to put on our in our request for I Would Only Smile uh, now. And I know there's some people we <laughs> posted on our Facebook group page. You know, we're asking, like, do you want to hear some songs? People are talking about Hometown Girls. They're talking about I Would Only Smile. They're t- I mean, uh, I, let me, I can pull it up. But yeah, people want to hear this music. We love this music. Well, weep for Love, of course. Well, you know, not to sound uh, too modest, but, I, you know, it's hard to... I don't know that those albums weren't that well known at the time. So it's hard to kind of believe that people know a lot of those songs in some ways. And it's a great, obviously, you know, it's a great um, compliment to me that they want to hear those songs because, you know, you kind of have, when you haven't played them or listened to them for many, many years, you forget all about them. And then when you revisit them, like I am doing, I see, yeah, there's some good stuff there. So, you know, I would, I would love to, have that that opportunity to go and play some of that stuff for sure have you had any particularly interesting revelations in revisiting your own solo albums yeah because as i say the you know the simplicity of a lot of those songs or the complexity whatever it is the the, some memories of putting them together and arrangements and and that you know it brings all the memories back what, what it does when you it's like looking through a book of photographs you know it brings your memories back and so yeah it's, it really is inspiring to visit your old stuff again and uh, like a hometown girl's song which is wish you could love i am doing on this tour because as i say it it, it features all the guys doing a solo and it's a kind of a good song for that but uh, yeah you don't have much And Say I Don't Mind is a song that I had with my electric string band. And um, that was kind of underground hit for me. And then Colin Blundstone from the Zombies covered it. And uh, he had a huge hit with it, especially in England. Very interesting version, too. Yeah, right. So, uh, you know, funny enough, he, he took the idea of putting just the strings with a voice. A little bit like mm-hmm. George and Paul did Rigby. So... He did that version of Say Don't Mind, but he took the idea from my version, which was just a, a trio, really. Well, actually, it was a few folk musicians I knew at the time. And um, Danny Thompson on bass from Pentangle. John Paul Jones was was a big session bass player at the time and also an arranger, and he arranged the string parts on that song. So they took John Paul Jones's ideas for the string parts and put it on Colin Blondstone with a twist, of course. Right. And they put it on his thing. And it, it was a selling point, yeah. I realize that I've been in your eyes some kind of fool. 
Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, say you don't mind, that's, I mean, I, I had no idea that was your song, and I had loved Colin Blundstone's version of it for years. And then I remember when we interviewed you, I mean, August of, it wasn't, it was, was that 2016 now? It was a few years ago. And you're like, oh yeah, that's, and we're doing the digging. And that's, that's a Denny Lane original. I'm like, what are, what are you talking about? This guy's amazing. Get out of it. So, <laughs> seriously. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, you know what's funny, cracked me up. I went on tour, you know, well, I did a few shows with the zombies. On a, on a package tour. And I said to Colin, you know, after, I'll tell you something, he did a great version of that song. I said, but you should have called me first because you got a lot of the words wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I said, it's to you I've lied and suffered inside. And he sings, to you I'm blind, something inside. I said, that don't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense, man. <laughs> he said, well, it's a bit late now, Danny. So, Denny, have you actually gone through these new Wings box sets? Have you looked at them and gone through the books and everything? I've looked at them. I've seen the Brutes and McMaster thing where I play a couple of bum notes on my solo. I'm not too happy about that. But I haven't actually, <laughs> listened. <laughs> I haven't actually listened to the, the remasters yet. I'm looking forward to it. But I haven't, I've been running around doing everything. I'm, I'm trying to put some si- time aside to do that. In fact, when we go away for New Year's, I think I might take it with me. Yeah, because I, I love the, the, the fact that they've all been remastered. I'm looking forward to hearing them. Yeah, and you know, the, all of this video footage that's been included in both sets, it's really revealing. You really, between the two sets, get the evolution of the band from pretty rough beginnings to really by the 72 stuff, the live stuff on Bruce McMouse, you guys are a solid band. I mean, it's approaching Wings Over America tightness. And I don't think I actually knew that, that it sounded that good that early live. Well, you've got to remember that, that the whole thing about me and Paul was that we were, we were all in band, we were in bands all our life, right from when we were kids. And playing in a band is always something that you want to be doing. When you go off and do solo stuff is one thing, with session guys or whatever. But when you get back into a band situation, you, the main objective is to play to an audience and to get tight and to enjoy, you know. when In the old days, we used to have to play to make people dance. Otherwise, we wouldn't get the gig. 
So, you, you know, you have right. to be good to get good grooves going. And that's what happened very quickly with that band. I mean, the combination of the guys, you know, Denny was uh, and and Henry, that was just a great little back line, really. I mean, they were they had certain styles that fitted in with me and Paul. I mean, me and Paul actually came up through, you know, all the the, the 60s stuff and 50s stuff, and and we were very very similar in our musical taste and uh, of course so we had that thing going then you got henry who comes from more of a sort of blues background and uh joe cocker band and then you got denny who was you know in the navy band he was in the navy band and he was a trained musician and also yeah you can tell from his mallet playing that he's got real training and i'm very session guy i mean he played on so many sessions albums you wouldn't even believe it um so he just was great and very very easy they were very easy to work with these people because they were just so good so it didn't take long to get the band in shape like that my question about bruce mcmouse i mean what was that like shooting that like where you guys are like pointing at fake cartoon mice and like what was that process (laughs) <laughs> well, obviously we were. <laughs> there were no real <laughs> I mean, I mean, I heard the drugs are pretty good back then, man. Maybe, maybe some people saw something. The, the, the mice were under drugs. We were straight. But <laughs> <laughs> any video you do, you kind of like to pretend you're, you're trying to be an actor, but you're not very good yeah. actors. <laughs> it's that it always comes across as cheesy to me, you know, like. Oh, look, there's a mouse and there's nothing there. But you you learn from it. I mean, I look at it, I kind of you know, cringe, you know. But it's, it's fun when you're doing it at the time. But you've got to remember that. I don't really remember it. But when I see it, obviously, I think, oh, I remember that jacket or I remember them pants and that guitar. <laughs> it's all that kind of <laughs> It takes, takes you back to, to something. It's almost not you. You know what I mean? You think it was that Well, right. Sure. (laughs) As long as we're on that topic, there is a Mary Had a Little Lamb video that completely blew my mind. Paul suddenly has a clown nose on, and you're uh, dressed as a jester, I think, and Linda's on a horse. Like, what the hell was going on there, man? (laughs) It's amazing. Maybe we'll just try to mix it up a bit and get away from the, you know, the Mary Had a Little Lamb nursery rhyme i don't know i don't even remember that being shot all i remember is walking around in white outfits outside and swinging in like you know swings and stuff and and paddling in boats that's all i remember of the video but it it was interesting because the so-called psychedelic version was less psychedelic than the clown nose and the horse yeah that clown version is wild (laughs) (laughs) I've got to tell you, I haven't really checked that one out fully yet, but um, I'm looking, yeah. We used to put do things like that. There's always some little quirky little bit videos, you know, that just to sort of spice it up a bit. Not, so it's not taken too seriously. I think that's kind of Paul's sense of humor coming out, and a little bit of mine too. But, you know, I wasn't really involved in any of the production side of that. I mean, I didn't come up with any of those ideas. I just went along, put right. the hat on, and did it, you know, <laughs> like like a, a yep. prop, you know. Yeah. Turn up at 10 a.m. and put this thing on, put this hat on. 
Yeah, right. Pretend you're a monkey or whatever, and you just do it. Yeah. And you don't do a very good <laughs> job of it. It's, it's fun. It's fun later when you look back at it, I suppose. You've got to remember oh, no, that we do silly things on stage too. You know, anything to get a laugh or to keep the tension going, you know. <laughs> I mean, I remember with, with Paul and me once and, and in a European tour we were doing and the theatre, the, all the electricity went off and everything was in darkness. So we grabbed hold of a, a torch or a flashlight, as you call it, and we walked back on stage and started tap dancing just with the yeah. flashlight at our feet. And he oh, the my God. They loved it. <laughs> you know, so... I mean, <laughs> Uh, it's the old thing of showmanship, I suppose. It just comes naturally, you know, when you're trying to sort of keep the thing going. You know, you got to do anything to keep the audience interested. Right. So that's the same with videos, I think. You, you know, the thing about videos is, is you're, you're trying to tell the story with, with pictures as well as just the music. And I think the Moody Blues Go Now was the first 70 mil um, promotional not video in those days, but, you know, promotional film that was ever done. And then everybody started doing that, and then it became video. So now when you make a record, you almost always have to make a video to go with it. As MTV started to put all that out, you're already thinking of what you're going to do when you, when you make a video based on the song and the lyrics and the, and the vibe of it, you know. So it's it's a good thing. It's... It's always been part of our our uh, our job, in a way, to come up with you know even if it's an album sleeve idea or or even stage gear, you know, clothing, whatever. We all it always comes from the band originally, you know, their style and what they want. And then then we get all the we, you talk to the producers, then the producers put it together in a way that you know they say, okay, come on, put your hat on, do this, go over there, we'll take a shot of that. And you don't know what it's going to be like until you see the final version. And then it's like, oh, good job. You know. It's like making a movie, I suppose. I've only never really made a full-length movie, but I've been in one as a guest. But, you know, I mean, doing movies, is, oh, that's, now that's work. <laughs> that's real work. But doing videos is, is kind of fun. So when you guys got the final version of Bruce McMouse back, did you screen it? Did you see it somewhere? And then you guys were like, nah, this can't come out. Like, why Why 2018? Why now? I, again, I wasn't part of that. It's, this is just stuff that's been sitting on the shelf. And, and, you know, through technology and whatever, you can now remaster and make things, bring it up to date to a certain degree, sound-wise especially, so that, you know, it's, it's up to date. And it, it gives it a whole new life. You know, as I say, I look at it and I, I see myself like in it, but I don't, I don't really remember a lot of it, how it all came about. But sure. yeah, it's, it's fun to see it. It's like, as I say, you, you think, oh, you cringe here every now and then, but at the same time, you, you, it's kind of, hey, at least we were doing something different in those days, you know, trying to do things. 
it's all about having the guts to do things, really. Uh, take a good chance. point, yeah. So as long as you know that's what you did, then then it's, it's you give it the seal of approval later on. And and the fact that people are, you know, the great thing is that the young kids now are fans of that music because of remastering and, and bringing things out that right. you've never written before, you know. So, I mean, like the Red Rose Speedway album, for example, was supposed to be a double album, right? So... We never, we we didn't put it out as a double album. So all those tracks that were left over are now all new to the public. Well, I mean, actually, I I did put, I think I put over the only smile out on one of my albums, my solo yeah. album, because Paul says if you want to use it, you can use it. But you know, as far as like the Wings thing, they're all new to the Wings fans, and then you got all the the Wings fans' kids and grandkids and all that stuff, and they're 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 liking it. You know, they're actually yeah. influenced by it, and it's it's a great feeling when you know that you got twenty year old kids that are in your fan coming to see you do his shows. You know, it's a good one. Well, and you guys did about twice as much music or more as you actually released, so it's quite the bounty for this stuff to be coming out. You know, that's what I'm saying, and and I think yeah. I think everybody does when they go in and make albums. I think everybody mm. overdoes it. And then they'd pick a certain, they just pick the ones that turn out the best for the album. Well, I know that there are bands, though. There are people like Steely Dan or Billy Joel who really don't have leftovers, you know. So to have no, such right. an abundance of leftover stuff that's high quality like that, it's really great. Yeah, well, we, so we had a lot of t- studio time. See, a lot of those bands, they're on the road, they go in, they've got three days of an album, so they do it. But, but like we mm. used to do in the old right. days. But when you've got studio time, you're actually doing a lot of writing in the studio as well as, you know, it's not just going in there with a song ready to record. You're actually writing and making things up as you go. You end up having a lot of stuff, and a lot of it's unfinished too. You mentioned in our last interview with you that a lot of that was Paul just getting away from crowds and and getting away from the public. How much of it was that, and how much of it was him being a sort of a workaholic? Well, a bit of both. I mean, once yeah. you get in the studio, you you know, I'm kind of a workaholic when I get going. Yeah, that's yeah, not an insult. <laughs> when you set that, <laughs> when you set yourself something to do, a goal then you you don't stop. You just go in there and you just keep going until you, you get tired of it. You know, it's like yeah. being on the road. If you're on the road too much, you start getting a bit stale and, oh dear, we're just going through the motions. Let's go. And so then you go in the studio. It's all about balance between the two, right? Because when you come off the road, you're, you're at your best to go in the studio because the energy level's there, you see. It's always hard in the studio to to get the same, you know, on tape as you would get from an audience, for example. And, and that's why I, I like the idea of maybe now doing a live album because you get more of a performance that way. But like I say, studios, it's more like a, the mad scientist workshop, you know, where you're making stuff up and having time to throw things out and put things in. And and that's really what the, the Beatles kind of started that with um, Sergeant Pepper. Because they had open yeah. studio time to make it up as they went along, you know. It's a luxury in a sense, but there again, if you're stuck in the studio, well, in Paul's case, as I said before, you know, when you're so famous and, you, and you're sitting at home, 
you want to just go in the studio because it's like every time you go out, you're going to get mobbed. Hmm. You, you put yourself into your work more, a little bit more. In his case, I know that was true. So and that's why a lot of people had their own home studios because that way they could stay at home and record and do stuff like that without having to go out to the public. I mean, it was an occupational hmm. hazard. Really. So a lot of that was going down. When I was in Wings, I learned a lot about studio work. Because really, with the Moody Blues, I didn't know, we didn't know much about it. I mean, Go Now was recorded in a studio that wasn't even finished. I mean, they were still putting the you know paint in the walls, and the carpenters' tools are lying around at the Marquee Studios, and nobody ever used it yet. So we just our studio time was like three hours in and out, you know, usually, you because it costs so much money to do it. Most people would go in and do three songs in three hours with the Beatles and them wings, that open-ended studio time just was like a, yeah, sorry, a creative workshop. And you, yeah. you you tried anything, you know. So you, that's how we ended up with so much stuff unfinished or or stuff we decided would be something else we want to put on the album and not that, you know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The yeah. thing about compilation albums as well is if you're doing a compilation album, um, then you you try and sort of make all the songs make sense or, or or segue into the next song. And and obviously, you don't want all the songs to be in the same key and the same tempo and all that sort of stuff. So you make up a story with a, with a selection of songs that you put on there. Uh, and it's the same with the stage set. You know, if, I, if somebody says to me, you're going to do a half-hour set, I'll make a setup with that exact same approach where, you know, it's not going to bore the audience or me. You know, it's going to kind of work as a little half-hour set. Or if it's a two-hour set, you do the same thing. So it's the same right. principles you use on the road and and on albums. You know, but as I say, we had that luxury of, of over recording, if you like. And the other thing mm -hmm. was, you, the equipment. You know, the equipment has changed all the time. And Mike Pinder from the Moody Blues was partly responsible with Eddie Ulibarri from uh, Roland Corporation. To invent, they invented the synthesizer, basically, according to, you know, experiment. What do you want, Mike? What do you think we should do? Oh, well, I'll try, try and get this sound. And they they started all that. So when you get one of them in the studio, you suddenly you're using that, you see. It's like, it's like when yeah. Stevie Wonder bought in a Lindrum, um, the, the rhythm box. He gave it to Paul as a present. And he, it's the same one he used on, I just called to say, I love you. So he gave it to Paul as a present. I was there. And and after that, of course, we started using it in a few of our songs. So so whatever the equipment is at the time, 32 tracks as opposed to four tracks, you're going to use it. You know, so in some ways, it, it's a tool. You've got to be careful you don't overdo it sometimes. But you're actually experimenting yeah, right. with stuff you don't know much about. You know, but you, you have that luxury of doing that. So you go through all the different changes and, you know, basically it comes down to at the end of the day where you just want to go in there with a band and record live. <laughs> you know what I mean? So <laughs> it's, it's yeah. Little, you're back square one again, you know. It's enough with all the obsessing right. over details, yeah, right? right? You want to play like musicians. Yeah. That's right. You don't want the, you don't want the tools to do the job for you. You've got to be able mm -hmm. to be a, a good musician first, you know, I think. Yeah. Tell that to yeah. the modern music business, Denny. That's the opposite of how it is now. Well, it is and it isn't because that 
the more I look around, especially on YouTube, there's some great players out there still. You know, you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah. It's like maybe in the eighties, it's all computers and they were doing it home stuff. But but you look on YouTube just just as some of the, the guitar or music lessons you can get. These players are out there. There's amazing players out there still. And, but it did a lot of them don't have a chance to go out and play live. <laughs> or or you know, like people are good musicians, yeah, yeah. but they don't mm-hmm. seen anymore. See what I mean? It's getting better. Though. Well, it is getting. And sometimes I think that the tools actually raise the stakes. So it becomes kind of, oh, well, you can just do this automatically now. So it raises the stakes for what you actually have to be able to do, you know, to be an accomplished musician. True. Anybody at home can just, you know, crack open Ableton and do something. So to, to rise above, you have to do something even better. You do. But, but that even better is how you use the tools and how you perform. You know, you see, you see what I mean? It's... It's like having a jigsaw puzzle. You know, you can either do quickly or slowly. Uh, you know, it's the same thing, but you've still got to put all the pieces in there before it's finished. And it might be big, it might be small. But, you know, if you've got all that fun stuff to play with, you're going to try You know, you hear a new sound, you go, oh, I'm going to use that. <laughs> you know, sampled sounds or whatever. <laughs> you, you, you just What right. takes your fancy? If you see what I mean, it's like listening to music that you haven't heard before, and you go, "Oh, I like this. I'm going to be influenced by this," and you end up going and writing a song about some weird music from, I don't know, Timbuktu or something. You know, it's everything is educational. That's all, and it's worth if you've got the luxury of having, you know, all this stuff. You might as well try it. I mean, the first thing I ever did with Tony Clark and Moody Blues, this is after he, he left the Moody's, of course. I was working on his boat. He had a boat with a studio in it. And he had one of these little uh, sequences with a little screen, you know, like Space Invaders type of thing, where you could play a piece of music and then you could put it anywhere you wanted in that box. So it's like a sequencer. You can move it to the back or the front. You can make songs up like that. Do you know what I mean? And that... You play a bit here and you play another bit and you put four bits in there. You juggle them around and you end up with an arrangement. It's the same as writing a song, you know, on your guitar with a piece of paper in front of you, but you're just doing it a different way. And it's, it's yeah, still yeah, it up to, put, to put it together in the right, you know, the right way. Well, there's nothing wrong with all these fun things, tools and whatever, but you've got to be careful that it doesn't, you know, confuse everything. I, a lot of my stuff, I listen to it now and I go, oh, I could have left that verse out. It's a bit too long. I shouldn't have put that section there. I should have done that. Huh. You know, they're, they're like demos in some ways. I mean, you never really mm. got it right, you know. Is there a song specifically you're talking about where you're like, I wish I cut that verse off or... Or you're just saying, you know, this is just something you've experienced. There's a few of them because I did them exactly like that, where I I, I pieced them together. Um, you know, like I'd say I, I would maybe to do two verses in the middle, and then I'd listen to it back and say I'd say to the engineer guy who I know is usually somebody who knows all the old school from Decca or, or EMI guy, you know. Yeah, and you would also know the new equipment, and I'd say, put that section there towards the end of the song, and I'll put some more lyrics on it, and you can sort of make up the song that way, and then I'll listen to it, and, and you know, like 
I don't know. I mean, what's an example I've heard recently? There's a song called um, Misty, Misty Mountain Takes You Back to Nature. And, and I overdid it. I put two, two, I repeated the first verse when I thought, well, it should have ended ah. there. Now I put the first hmm. verse back in again. And now a double chorus on the end. I should have not done that, you see, because it sported yeah. me. revisit something and you listen to it and you look at it you think ah could have been that should have done that and it maybe would have been more more of a better song in some ways so yeah you, you're always making those kind of mistakes to a certain degree you know like I say if you're at home doing it you're not going to be doing that just if you just got a guitar or a keyboard you're just going to write the song there and then it's done right uh-huh. you do it naturally but when you've got these tools to play around with that's when you sometimes mess up, you see, by adding too much, you know, getting carried away with all the, the possibilities. So you got to be careful of that. I think that's where, like, it was dangerous when computers were first used and sequences were first used for a lot of people, you know. And, and of course, then there wasn't that much work on the road. People weren't going out. There weren't as many venues. So uh-huh. people weren't playing live. That, that's the problem, you know. When you play live, you get much more of an idea of how to write the, write the perfect song. One thing about the videos of the live footage in the in the two new box sets that I found really enjoyable was watching your left hand. Uh, I've always thought that your voicings, your chord voicings, which are rather original, were a big part of the Wings sound. So I wanted to ask you, you pretty much came up with your own parts, right? And I also wanted to ask you about your, your guitar sound, which is quite distinctive. It's really a Wings thing. Your guitar sound, is that about the guitars you were using, the pedals you were using? How do you get that kind of dry 
distorted well, sound? Well, I, ne- I, ne- I don't remember really using pedals that much. Okay. Maybe for chorus and maybe a little bit of distortion on something. If I was ever playing a solo at any point, but I was usually just a rhythm guitarist. And, and you know, my sound comes from the fact that it's the way I play. It's not, you know, it's like you, you can put John Bonham on his kit of drums and it'll sound completely different to Ginger Baker. It's the same kit of drums, mm. you know, it's the style, it's the way you play. Um, and I always had that kind of a, a aggressive uh, rhythm style that, you know, I was yeah. always wanting to be on beat. And a lot of that comes from playing with drummers as speed, speed up, you know what I mean, and slow down. Okay. <laughs> no, but seriously, you, you, you get to, when you're a writer and you sing and you sing and play, you get to learn how to stay out the way and come in. Dynamics is a very important part of it. And that, different, that gets you your sound. And it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. like the early Moody stuff, I was playing a Rickenbacker. And it was a very tinny sound. And I wasn't that wild about it. Listen to it mm-hmm. now, it's all like, dunk, 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 dunk. You know, like a Fender's got a special sound and the Rickenbacker's a special sound. A lot of guitars have their own signature sound. And, but, you know, with, with the style that I played, uh, which is very kind of bluesy, but also very rhythmic, because I'm, I'm backing myself, you see. And I don't have to think about mm-hmm. what the guitar part is, or I'm, I'm the voice and the guitar is the same. You're playing it at the same time. When you say backing up Paul on a song and you're just playing rhythm, you you tend to work to the vocal like you would your own vocal. See, so you 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 learn your part according to what he's singing. You, you get mm-hmm. used to singing it a certain way, and so you change the chord shape to that in that particular part mm-hmm. of the song. So that's how you make up your part. Yeah. You know, a lot of my chords are obviously based in skiffle and stuff like that, just your straight A, D, G, E, you know, F, those root chords. But then when you start playing around with these different inversions of those chords... Well, that was the stuff that really interested me to see, the stuff higher up on the neck. Yeah. Look, without getting too deep into it, it's like classical music. When you hear the first say, you know, movements, and it's like, that's the song, that's the sort of basic music. Then the next movement is a variation of that. So a variation on that theme. Then the middle section mm-hmm. is something else. Then there's a variation on the next middle section. You keep moving it up and down and changing it, but you, it's still the same chords almost. So you yeah. do it according to, to making the thing more interesting. You know, mm. so you 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 learn that after playing in bands and and listening to other people's music, and then you get start to get your own style based on the music that you like to listen to. So, well, I was always listening to kind of gypsy jazz, skiffle, you know, rock and roll, singer songwriters like Buddy Holly and people like that, and and the Everly Brothers. You know, so I. My musical style comes from a lot of different kinds of music, is what it is. And also, I learned to play piano, obviously, in these, those days more. I, was, I never used to play piano at all in Moody's. But I learned, as I was writing, you know, I would start to learn chords, watching Mike Pinder sometime. Or my mother used to play right. piano a bit. But, but, you know, it's like I was never really a pianist. But once I started going to the studio and making up parts, you know, 
especially samples and stuff. You learn to where everything is, and I kind of taught myself how to play the piano. And then I started writing on the piano. So then I would take those chord shapes, and then I would put them on the guitar. You see what I mean? Mm. I'll I tell you I a good example of that. There's a, a real good guitar player called Eric Johnson. And he does the same thing because he started as a keyboard player. So his chords on the guitar chords are very similar to piano shapes. It's just mm, the way he plays because he was influenced like that, you see. So without yeah. going into too deeply, that's kind of what I'm like. I take parts and bits from lots of different styles of music and I try and learn those shapes. And then I, I make up the parts like that you know you 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 hear a song say paul's written a song i will say okay it needs this kind of style or or i'll add this rhythm you know it sort of changes it up a bit you know if he's playing mm -hmm. one thing you play something opposite that and it gives it a nice feel that kind of and he thing. was pretty much leaving that to you to work out yeah yeah of course yeah because Great. because he's playing his part and singing you're making a song up as you go, but you, you try to do something different to what he's doing and vice versa. You don't want to be yeah. playing the same part. You don't want to copy his bit. So you kind of put something in between it, you know. It's like two rhythm guitarists, and then, then one of them becomes like the lead guitar, and then each, you know what I mean? It's, it's just a part, you, you just find your own place within that song. <laughs> So the arrangements are by wings. It's not as if Paul's coming in and saying, play this, play that. No. Well, right. he, look, I am the same. You go in that studio with ideas and you know what the song, you know, more or less is all about. But you're not sure until you get in there how it's going to develop. You know you're going to go in there and if somebody doesn't come up with an idea, you're going to be able to tell them something, give them an idea to play. But Got it. But that wasn't like that so much. You know, I, I was at a Leon Russell session once, and, and uh, it was very late at night, and everybody had been, they'd been doing a show, and everybody was kind of, you know, in there, getting just laid back. And the guitar player, some session guy, he wasn't in his band, he said, well, what do you want me to play? And Leon says, you're the guitar player. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> So that's a little bit like it was with us, you know, just make something up. And then you might make something up and they go, oh, do that riff again. Do that there. Let's repeat that there. You know, that's how you get the pieces of from somebody coming out with something. You've got to have that creative mind to do that. You don't want to just be a follower. But you are a follower to a certain degree, but you don't want to be just doing it something it's not like that it's written down i mean paul couldn't write read and write music 
I could a little bit, but that was only from school, and I developed it, as I say. But, you know, it was just like it was by ear. And it's not like we were sitting down reading a part. Like if you right. get an orchestra in, it's all written out for them. It's scored for them. Sure. They play on the page. But it wasn't like but, that. You know, there are some bands where, you know, someone comes in and says to the bass player, here's how it goes, and starts playing the bass part on the guitar or whatever. And it's it's refreshing to know that Wings wasn't that situation, that Wings was actually, everyone came up with their part. It certainly wasn't initially because he'd come in with a song and you'd just start playing it. You know, mm-hmm. you'd figure out the chords and you'd start playing it and then you would you would end up with something that's recordable, you know, that's it. Then you might think, oh, well, that's a bit boring. I think I'll put this there then. And I'll, you go in and you do another take and then you, you change it up a bit until you get to the part where you're happy with your part. See? And then it might be, well, let's, this is a riff, you know, that's going to go through that section. And so you... Maybe you both play that riff together in that section of the song. So you do learn, you know, things that other people's ideas as well. It's a mixture, right? Yeah. But, but generally speaking, you know, ideas come to you as you're running things through. It has to be that kind of person who's creative and wants to try things, daring to do something. My question to this is, is this, so the riff on I Would Only Smile in the, the intro, da-na-na-na, is that you? Is that your thing? No, nah, it was probably, it was probably Henry. Uh-huh. Okay. Do, 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 do. Because I wouldn't have thought of that. All I had was the chords and the and the lyrics. And that's a really catchy riff. You know, that's really part of the tune. So I mean, these really are collaborative songs. Of course it is. And it's the same with Paul's bass part. He, his bass playing is very melodic because he's a he's a singer and he's, he's used to playing. You know, behind other people and staying out the way. But he's got to keep. He's got to keep the beat going like the drummer. He has to be on with the bass drum. He has to be on the one all the time. But he's, he's still got room to make up a part that's very interesting. It's like a harmony part, like the Everly Brothers, you know. Yeah. You would, mm-hmm. You'd get the song, but then you'd get a, the perfect harmony that just comes naturally to go with those, that melody. Same with the bass part, same with the drum part. You, you just have to be that creative, that's all. Because if somebody has to tell you how to play it, then, you know, unless you can read music and they can write it, it's going to be chaos. You have yeah. to let people play what they want to play. Like like Ringo, for example, was left to play more or less what he wanted to play until later on it got a bit weird and everybody saying, well, try this and try that. And, uh, you know, right. that, that kind of can, can get, well, you know, it's like studio fever, really. But usually if you're a good player, you just go in and you play as you feel and you get through a song that way. And it's usually the best take, you know, comes from that. Sometimes you can be too bloody precise or too trying to be too clever and it spoils it. You know, the whole thing about a great band is how raw it is. The more raw, the better it is, you know. That's that's it with me. I like I like players who can get a good groove and and it's very basic stuff. I mean that's what I liked about the Stones. 
you know, just Charlie and, and, and Bill. You know, we used to do a lot of work with the Stones. I mean, the friends of mine. But that bass and drum thing is the main part to me. <laughs> really is. same ideas and we're all kind of bouncing them off of each other it's easy to sort of get work done when other people understand what you're talking about you know so you talk about things before you do it it always comes from an idea you know and, and what i'm talking about now is i'm just relaying a lot of the ways things came about that's all it's 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 nothing right you know revolution it's not rocket science but it's 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 how things were done. So it's it's not that deep. Just I I believe everybody in a band has exactly the same approach. Or you know any teacher who learns and wants to pass things on to other people. You you just you make it your job of like learning the best way yeah. of, of uh, saying yeah. it. And when you're working with people who share the same aesthetics and have the same musical background, it's a great pleasure when they just know what to do. That's it. I mean, you, yeah. you're like, they do something, you, you look up and you go, yeah, that's it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm on it. <laughs> you know, and then life's easy then. So it doesn't have to be like pulling teeth. It has to be, you know, it has to be like a natural thing. And, and like I say, right. if you're working with people like Stevie Wonder, you know, and Stanley Clark. And I mean, there's, there's uh, Steve Gadd and people like that. Carl Perkins. You, when you're around these people, you go, and Ringo, you go, ah, great, you know, these are the people I've used to admire doing their thing, and all you want them to do is just do their thing, and you, then you slot in with it, you know, and you, you, it makes you come up with something that you've never done before, and them, you know, so it's just great bouncing off other musicians like that. Well, so you're bringing up the era that's like the tug of war pipes of peace era. A lot of people have asked us since you know you were on last. You know, do you remember what you contributed to those sessions? Like what parts or what songs or, or, or any of that that you worked on? Can you speak to any of that? Uh, don't make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> because the truth is, till I listen to it, the answer would be no. <laughs> but okay. uh, somebody—that's well, fair enough. I'm the person at the office 
sent a list of the songs I was playing on. <laughs> so that was the start. <laughs> so once you start listening to you can hear yourself in there. You see what I mean? And and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, again I was experimenting on stuff and it wasn't probably guitar, maybe it was just a I don't know. Maybe it was just a tambourine part. Maybe it was this vocal, maybe it was this it's you you don't just play one instrument when you're making records like that. You're part of the whole thing. You know, you, I mean, was the atmosphere rather different working on those than from Wings? Um or was Wings still kind of going? I guess it was ambiguous, wasn't it? Yeah, because the fact is Wings is always progressing anyway. You know, people came and went as we got further into doing, you know, more stuff. We we were experimenting again with instruments, technology and whatever. And then suddenly those two albums became, we're now working with other people, you know. So we're bringing in people we admire, players, and we want to work with them to see what comes of it. That's what that was. But it's no difference to us going to, say, Africa to do Band on the Run, where we were automatically influenced by <laughs> exactly. the music around us in Africa, you know. It's not as if there was a routine, in other words. I mean, it was always something different. Yeah, yeah. And and, and just the combination of the people's like chemistry brought things out that, you know, it's 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 exciting when that happens. And you get a little bit of that when you're working with bands, you know, you do, you get that too. It's, it just comes naturally to you to put your part in, you know. I think that's what it's all about. I think, I think you, I met Hans Zimmer not long ago with Peter Asher and he was telling me about a guitar player that he wanted on some of his film music he was doing. And this guy couldn't read music, but he just wanted the guy because of his style. He'd heard it on some record and he wanted it. And the guy, cause, you know, just came and didn't know what the hell they wanted him. He wanted to play. He says, just play what you want to play. Because all mm-hmm. I want is your style. I don't want you to, you know, be like anything else on there. I want your style. And he said, that, you know, it, was, it worked out great. Because he wasn't a session man. He wasn't given the dots. He was just left free to do it. You know, yeah. so I mean that that that's a great thing to to say. Okay, well you've got a style, and that's what we want. We want that style. Yeah. It's like hey, if, I, if somebody wanted me to play, you know, rhythm guitar on a reggae song, which I love reggae, I would know exactly what to play, wouldn't I? You know, because I've I've like learned it. You know, you learn that it's like when I was living in Spain, I learned a lot of flamenco guitar style. You know, and dance and uh, styles and and the pedios and and things and in fact i used one of those style that style on uh, delivery of children spanish guitar i i got that style from living in spain around the gypsies and um so whatever style you learn you can adapt to any kind of you know you can put it on some something somewhere down the line um and as i say i any kind of dance music i love you know, African drums like Ginger Baker style and and all that and um, and you know, Fomenko, you name it, you know, uh, Hispanic stuff. I, I love all those all those uh, dance styles. Um, so I mean, that's you know, like Carlos Santana and things like that. You know, you, you learn about that music and then you're not grow you don't grow up with it, but you know a lot about it. You studied it by listening to it. 
and you can fall into that and, and add your bit to it. You know, I mean, Carlos Santana yeah. is one of those guys that likes to do stuff with other people, and it sounds great. You know, so I mean, that's it's great to be a part of something that you didn't, you know, invent or you weren't, you know, brought up in that music, but yeah. you you know about it. Well, you learn a lot about your own resourcefulness in that situation, right? Yeah, of course you do. heard anything about a cold cuts reissue however you want to call it no idea but i'm i, yeah. I imagine knowing paul <laughs> it's like yeah you can repackage anything but but it's i mean a lot of the cold cuts material is coming out on these archive editions but there's still like cold cuts as an object that interests a lot of us you know it'd be kind of interesting to see that and sometimes the the versions of these songs that are coming out on the on the archive editions are not the ones a lot of us know from cold cuts. Right. So it's kind of a question mark. That is true, but that's what's cool. I like that. I I'll give yeah. you a little story. When I when I went into to a, a Sergeant Pepper session, I was they were doing a fall on the hill, and I was there all day hanging around, and there was a lot of stuff in there harmonies, extra bits, guitar pieces, whatever, bits that didn't end up on the final record. You know what I mean? They'd be on the tape somewhere, but they didn't actually mix them in. They'd like throw a lot. They'd try stuff and throw it away and put whatever they finished up with what they did. So it's similar with a, with a, with a cold cut or, or a different way you might do something. It's the same song, but you might try and do, put a different something to it. And then at the end, you go, oh, no, I think we'll stick with what we originally had. So those are outtakes, and those are things that you don't end up having on the final record. But but that happens a lot in recording, believe me. You know, you, you, you might put 20 harmonies on and think, oh, well, I liked it better with just two. So, yep. I mean, the, the cold cuts thing is, it, it's it's an open... You know, you're open to do a lot of that stuff with stuff that people don't really know. There's a version of Go Now on this Moody Blues thing, which is a lot slower. We've already said more bluesy almost, which probably wouldn't have worked at all as a single. (laughs) But there's a cut on there where Alex Murray says to me, try it slower, Denny. (laughs) <laughs> we went and listened to it, and I said, "Nah, we don't do it." Like nah. That. We tried it. You tried it, and it's on tape. I'll send everybody to sleep in the audience. <laughs> We've already said goodbye. Oh, you see me cry 
It's on tape, and it's years later. It's you know, it's fun for fans to hear those things. It is. It's great. You know, it, it, it makes you see the inside of where things have gone. You know, and it, you know, it gives a lot of people a lot of confidence to try things as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, it totally does. I mean, you hear your your favorite artists kind of experimenting and failing, and finally getting to the version, and you go, oh, you know, they're human. They had to try a few times. You know, it's it's good. <laughs> Exactly. Quite reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what it's all about. You know, you talk to anybody who's successful, they're going to say, hey, I've had more failures than successes. say <laughs> <laughs> that. Maybe success is the art of just hiding your failures, you know. <laughs> just don't let those out. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. 1882, to celebrate. One, two, three. One, two, three. Quick question. Do you know anything about the song 1882? No. It sounds a bit like 1985 to me. (laughs) (laughs) No. But, you know, now you mention it, a little bell rang in my head, but I don't exactly know what it was. My memory Mm -hmm. for certain things, like nil, and always was. (laughs) Very selective. It's a cool song. So you, you haven't gone back and listened to that recently then? Yeah. If you play it to me now, I'd say, am I on that? (laughs) You're on it all right. It's a cool, (laughs) it's a cool record. I was just talking to Ray Thomas on the telephone just before and she was, we were talking about a lot of the stuff in the Moody stuff that we didn't remember recording you know like we had mm. we had a song a Tim Harding song called um, How Can We Hang On To A Dream which we recorded and was gonna be the follow-up to Go Now very similar in sound and style Tim Harding huh. song great song completely forgot that we'd even recorded it until she played it to us like when when they remastered the uh the moody blues box set they found all this other stuff in there and we it it never got released because of management problems at the time and i'd completely forgotten that we'd 
we'd recorded it. And the same with one of Ray Thomas's songs, which is going to be the 23rd Psalm. And uh, that we recorded that too, and he'd forgotten all about it too. So, you, you know, it's, it's weird the way things slip through the cracks like that. That's yeah, kind of cool to have sort of hidden chambers in your own work. Well, you know, these, little, these little closets that, you know, I, I barely remember what happened there and you can go back and reinvestigate. And Yeah, you know. it is. Because when you listen to something that was good, you go, oh, Christ, that's, that's pretty good. I wish I'd use that. But then, <laughs> no, in the case of this, this thing, this Hang On To A Dream, though, that would have been a great single for the Moody's to come out. And to, so when we found out later that it, we had recorded it, remember this, I still don't remember the session. But, you know, I know it was us because it's, it's a great version of the song. It, it's, it's worked out really good. It would have been a great follow-up to go now. And that's the only sad part about it, in a sense. But there you go. What are you going to do? It's just the way it is. So there's some, certain things that slip through the cracks that, that you wish hadn't, you know. at the track listing for the so-called reconstructed double album and do you have any insight into how how much that matches up with the original concept no because the thing is this you know my thing is this we never used to listen to our stuff that much after we recorded it see what i mean Hmm. so i don't really remember what other tracks we recorded until i and i haven't played the new thing yet i just we got it last week in the post Got from MPL. Mm-hmm. So I haven't played it. So I don't know what those tracks are. I only know that my song's on there. All right. All I know is that we were originally going to do it as a double album, which I think everybody and knows. You, when the idea was rejected for the double album, was that Paul's decision or EMI? Well, I wouldn't know. You know, okay. I, like I say, I, I, I hate to say it, I was just a guitar player. <laughs> okay. Fair, yeah, fair enough. No, but I mean, we're trying. We're trying to uncover this mystery because there are conflicting accounts of what happened there. So, I don't know a lot of, of what goes down, and I'm proud I don't know a lot. You know, because you'll never learn if you if you know it all, right? But I know that we were working with Glenn Johns, and Glenn Johns is a great yes. producer. And the reason we brought him in was because he was a great producer, and he'd been. He'd, it worked with all those bands. I mean, if it weren't for Glenn Johns, there would have been no Eagles, for example. Because mm. my friend Randy Meisner from the Eagles told me this story that they went to England to try and make it, and they went to Glenn Johns to record them. They were doing a re- recording uh, test for him. And he says, oh, I can't use you guys. You sound like a million other bands, right? Mm. Well, then one day he's walking by and he hears them reco- rehearsing in a side room with acoustic guitars. And he said, now that's a, that's a sound I can record. And they got the job because of that, by accident. Mm. And he was therefore the, the guy that was responsible for the Eagles being famous in the story. 
So that was Glenn. He he worked with all sorts of people, as you know, cream, you name it. Yeah. So it, right. he was a good guy, and he, him and his brother Andy were, were kind of well known at the time. But the problem was, Paul wasn't used to working with a producer, except George Martin, really. <laughs> so. You know, all right. of a sudden he's thrown in there in the deep end with the producer, and there's there was obviously some conflict there because Paul, you know, was having uh, communication problems of sorts, and maybe that's the reason. Although we did a lot of tracks, maybe that's the reason a lot of them never got finished. But I don't I know see. the real story, so I don't want to go down in history saying that's the reason. But it could have been part of it. You know, we just never finished a lot of the stuff, but as far as I can remember. Or maybe we mm -hmm. finished it and weren't that pleased with it, and, you know. Gosh, there were a lot of songs. Yeah, there, there seemed to have been something on the order of 30 songs or something like that. A lot wow. of material. Well, that's news yeah. to me. Uh, I will listen to it and I'll be blown away. It's Again, it's the same story as the Moody Blues, you know. It's the same thing. Yeah. There's a lot of songs yeah. in there that I... We were just listening to the other day, and I was going, Christ, I forgot all about that one. Mm -hmm. The same thing. I have a bunch of questions from the internet, and I can just ask a few of those. Yeah, do you mind answering a few listener questions? Go ahead. So our friend Chloe has written in. She's asking, so how did you end up doing a cover of the Garth Brooks song, Thunder Rolls? Very good question, because the answer would be, I don't know. But I don't I do know... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do know some of it, but but Chloe is great. She's like, well, number one fan. I'm, I just love her to death. She's a great and a great artist as well in her own right, and, and a musician and and a painter. Now, the fact that she's one of my biggest, you know, admirers is a great thing. She's like twenty years old. Well, it's a you know, I like that. When when she really is into the music, you know, and and, and it's it's a real compliment coming from that. By the way, we just we should acknowledge her too because she helped us out a great deal in our, our last interview with you. So thanks to Chloe. Yeah, Chloe's great. Well, that's what I mean. She knows more than I do. So what she asking me the question for? She probably knows the answer. <laughs> well, there you go. No, seriously, there is short story to that. And that is this guy came to me. Now, what's the name of the, the guy who produced it? I can't remember. But it's a Nashville guy. And he's a producer. And he's also a guitar player. Now, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But somehow he got to me and wanted me to sing on this compilation album they were doing. Right. And that's the song he wanted me to do. Now, I'd never heard it before, but I liked it. It's a little bit like what happened with Roy Wood saying, you know, they wanted some guy wanted to do a compilation album and it was a Christmas album and I did I wish it could be Christmas every day. So it was the same thing. Somebody just approached me with the idea and I, I liked the song and I did it. But it was a compilation album out of, out of Nashville. Sounds good. I actually heard it the other day. Sounded really good. Great song. Gospel is a great writer. 3.30 in the morning, not a soul in sight The city's looking like a ghost town on a moonless summer night Raindrops on the windshield, there's a storm moving in 
He's heading back from somewhere that he never should have been And the thunder rolls And the thunder rolls Amazing. Uh, I have one from Elliot Marks. So, let me see if I'm reading this the right way. Well, he, he starts with a compliment on again and again and again. One of the greatest slices of power pop ever released. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> oh, it is an awesome song, man. And then he goes on with some questions. Yeah, there's some questions. I think the one that interests me is, he says... Can you tell us about the All Those Years Ago sessions? So that song for George Harrison that you and I believe Paul and Linda were on. Background vocals. Any stories or memories? At George's house. Right. Well, yeah, I remember, uh, yeah. I think we only did harmonies or something. But anyway, I did. I remember George Martin turning up and he, he had a sort of slight accident he spun his car or something so he was all a bit nervous and i don't know and then we you know we had some and then we we did the recording and and it was i remember standing around the mic doing the harmonies but <clears throat> i don't remember what else i put on there i mean they had the track nearly finished you know i think they just wanted the harmonies but anyway i know that when paul and linda and george left george martin I went upstairs with George to his studio and we had a laugh. Another Al Cooper yeah. story, actually. Al Cooper called his mother in New York with a, with a even tied um, voice, you know, with a speed. What did he call Yeah. You go, oh, one of them. He called his mother in New York with a very serious, you know, and but he had this even tide thing going with his voice changing up and down, and me and George are cracking up, falling about, laughing at this because he's, yeah. he's talking to him perfectly normal, but it's sounding like Mickey Mouse, you know. And and she about five minutes into it, she goes, "Is that you, Al?" <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was doing it on. He's probably stoned. But yeah. yeah, I remember. We had a laugh about that. She's probably used to it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we had, George and I used to be pretty good friends. So he was a neighbor. So, um, to the Moody Blues house, when he was with Patsy, it was a, he lived just down the road from us. So I was always over at his place. So, yeah, it was really that. And, I, you know, it was the first time I'd seen him, really, for years. And went into his house, Fire Park, which is amazing. And it was good fun. But, you know, when you know somebody, you know them, right? And uh, it was just like the old right. days. Hey, George, how are you doing? How's what's going on? And he goes, well, I think the, I think the cook's left something in the fridge for, for us to munch on. And <laughs> we had a little mm. snack or something in the kitchen. And then we went out and put the voices on. That's about all I remember <laughs> of it. Great. But it was a good day. It was a great day. Okay, so Paul Sally has a question for you. Will you talk about the situation in New Orleans where you and Jimmy had an adventure when Jimmy asked a junkie for directions? I've never even heard that. What is that? Well, you know, I mean, the thing was, we were coming out, I think we were coming back from a club or something. I don't remember. It was like, you know, the sun was coming up kind of thing. And we were lost. 
And he walked up to some people standing in a doorway who had just come out of a club. He went up to ask this guy the directions to the hotel who was staying at the Richelieu Hotel. And I'm just standing by the curb there and he's up to this doorway and suddenly I see this guy pushing Jimmy around. Right. He turned on him. I don't know whether he was being stroppy or something, or maybe just his Scottish accent. <laughs> <laughs> he might have said something and right. back. And, and they were definitely, you know, out of their brains, these guys and girls. There was a group of them. So suddenly they're pushing Jimmy around. And, and so I leapt in and some guy, you know, I used to do a bit of boxing as a kid and I just kind of laid him down a bit and then held a taxi, <laughs> jumped in the taxi. And that was it. Just got him out of it. Jimmy was a little guy, but he had a big mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a little stroppy little Scotsman. Oh, yeah, see you, Jimmy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was like that. Jimmy's <laughs> had a couple of drinks. But anyway, it, would have, it could have turned nasty, but I, I stepped in and helped him and got him out of it. That was all that was. You know, I actually have a question for you, a question for me, Ryan. So, Denny, congratulations. You're a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I am, but I'm not going to wear that am T-shirt. I... That Stella McCartney <laughs> wore that T-shirt with a, with a dad. Whoa. <laughs> I wouldn't be wearing <laughs> one of them. We never thought of it as being, you know, uh, one way or the other. It's just that we're, I've seen this story a million times now, but we're, being English, yeah. we didn't know much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It wasn't an English thing, you see. Although I've lived in right. America for a long time and the Moody's have been coming here for years, of course, we know about it, but we weren't that bothered that we weren't in it. But then there was a lot of people right. in the business saying we should be, and of course, you know, uh, finally we were. So... You know, I was lucky in some ways because at first I wasn't I wasn't invited to be there, and then suddenly, you know, a lot of people protested because I wasn't on the list, and uh, Peter Asher, Stevie Van Zandt, cousin, cousin Bruce, he put in a word, and suddenly they they asked me to do be on it. Now, when I went there, I didn't have a speech prepared. I didn't go upstairs and meet everybody. I was just kind of sat at the table, and I had no clue what was going on really. But it was just great to yeah. see everybody, everybody, especially Mike and Graham. Shame that Ray wasn't there, of course. But, uh, you know, it was great. And, like, Justin and John were great to me. You know, I just love those guys anyway. I'm very proud of the fact that they went on and did what they did. And I am actually a big fan of their music. I think I think John and, and Justin are great writers, you know, great people, great players. Justin's an amazing guitar player, believe it or not. He really is. Anyway, um, having said that, and they're both great musicians, great singers. So I was part of that whole thing. It made me feel really good. Now, although I didn't think, well, who cares whether I'm in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or not, 
But the minute you are, you, 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 you're a different animal. You start becoming, yeah, very proud of the facts, you know. So it's like, it's right. like anything else. It's like anything else. You think you, you don't know how good it is until it happens, you know. So, yeah, it's a great feeling. And I'm getting a lot of uh, respect. And it's opened a lot of people's eyes, you know. A lot of Moody Blues fans didn't even know I was ever in the Moody Blues. That's unbelievable. I can't even believe that. Well, because the younger one, whatever, they just know it from from that era after Night in White Saturn. Yeah, late 60s, yeah. Yeah. But it's a good feeling, for sure. It really is. And that's why I'm going out and doing the album. I'm going out and doing that album because of that, in a way. I'm promoting the Moody Blues album on stage now. Uh, yeah, you know. right. If people want to buy tickets to see you play, where can they go? Where should we direct them to? Because we want people, everybody listening, go see Denny Lane. Go to Denny Lane Official Fan Club on Facebook. Facebook. And you know what? We'll also right. post those tour dates on our website and our social media for everybody. So they'll be available. And we'll have links to all of these recordings. And you know what? Buy a box set or two for your pal, Denny Lane. <laughs> Great, man. Hey, Denny, before you go, uh, I think we asked you this last time. So we'll ask again. Uh, any chance of any reissues of some of your solo material? Oh, I stuff. Well, that again is something I've got to chase up because I've, I've got you know, political problems going on there with that stuff. And I've something mm-hmm. I've really got to get down to chasing up. But uh, at the moment, it's, it's like I say, it's the legal matter. Let's put it that way. Okay. Because I, It'll I, be great to see it happen sometime. Yeah, I would love to do it. I mean, that's one of the plans now to do that. But it's, it's on the back burner, but, you know, getting attention. But yeah, right. I'd love to do that. And I'd really love to if we can get hold of it. See, a lot of that stuff, though, isn't, it is, it's on data, it's not on tape, you know, a lot of it. So, I mean, mm. I'd have to get rid of, get hold of all of that stuff in order to remaster, you know. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. And that's a big right. job, too. Yeah, remastering is a huge job. Studio time. But thanks. I, I would like to do that. And thanks for the encouragement because I, I'm, I'm going to do it eventually. Fantastic. Well, Denny, we're big fans of you. We love your work. This isn't just so, oh, he was a guy with Paul. It's like, we're Denny Lane fans. And I think a lot of people that are listening, if not everybody that's listening, would say the same thing. Well, you know what? I I really appreciated that last thing you did. When, when I came to Chicago, we went and sat talked for four hours, whatever it was. Because yeah. I was impressed. I was impressed yeah. that you, knew you were so interested in, in all my stuff. You know, there's a guy called Andrew Sandoval who manages the Monkeys. He's the same. He used to work at Rhino Records, and he was a huge fan and, and like, you know, knowledge. His knowledge of me and my background was unbelievable. That always makes you feel good. I mean, who's not going to feel good at at that? So thanks again, guys. I really appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you. All right. See you soon, then, because I've got to go. I'm wanted on the other side of the planet. Yeah. <laughs> well, we better let you Take get care, started, Danny. then. <laughs> Take care, guys. See you soon. Bye-bye. Cheers. It seems that I have no choice in the matter. All along in a fortune as you roll. 
Wow, so thank you so much, Denny Lane, back again. Denny Lane returns. Well, how exciting was that? We are lucky guys to have access yes. to, the, to the source himself. How about that? Seriously. Yeah, and Denny, please, please come back on. Everybody loves you. Everybody loves hearing those stories that you have. You know, thank you so much. And, you know, actually, holding on the end of the line here, uh, believe it or not, we have Luca Parasi, the author of Paul McCartney, Recording Sessions, 1969 to 2013, A Journey Through Paul McCartney's Songs After the Beatles. Now, you know, we've referenced him a lot. We do rely on him as one of our sources. And here he is. We're so excited to have him here with us today. Yeah. Hello. Luca. Thanks for, for this invitation. Very, very honored to be with you, finally. Oh, thanks well, for coming on, Luca. man. Where would we be without you and your book? Yeah. I mean, this is like, I feel like I'm talking to uh, some kind of demigod. Like, you're, we're a big fan of yours. You're one of our heroes. Oh, I know, I know. I've uh, listened to, to some of your podcasts, and they are, they are fantastic. It's really a joy to, to, to hear you, because uh, I feel your passion when you, you do all this uh, stuff, and, and it's great. It's, it's really great. <laughs> So thank oh, you. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> How long did it take you to research and write that book? Because I think I bought it in 2014, and I we just got through it. It took us three or four years to go through the whole thing, just reading it and doing the show. Mm-hmm. No, it took it took a long time. Uh, it took a long time, but um, you know, it started off when I was. Uh, I think. Uh, it started off in 1999, something like that. Wow. Because, uh, Whoa. yeah, the, the project, uh, you know, took shape uh, step by step. You know, I just, uh, well, I started writing about, uh, you know, Paul's music and, uh, and uh, when I was, I don't know, maybe when I was 15, I, I always enjoyed to write or research or doing things uh, on my own, for my own pleasure to do, I don't know, rev- little reviews of his, his records uh, or to have this list of uh, instruments, musicians. I've always did this kind of things. Then in 1999, I, I have um, started uh, with this project. That was at the time uh, an uh, sort of like uh, encyclopedia of uh, McCartney songs from A to Z. Yeah. So I well remember that the first thing I have written was another day because it was a, a song, a song with an A. Maybe it's not uh, the first in alphabetical order, but at the time, yeah, it just started with another day. And then, you know, just uh, I don't know something like one song a day. Let's uh, let's uh, put together all the material I had, uh, all the magazines, all the interviews I have uh, collected over the years. And then, uh, you know, it was just uh, a thing really for 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 myself, but. At some point, I had uh, all of his release songs on uh, written, written out in Italian, obviously. And then uh, I remember in 2010-11, well, I said, well, the, the time has come to, to do something on this. <laughs> and uh, and then in uh, in 2011, uh, over uh, one year or something, I started interview interviewing people. And the first one was uh, Carlos Salomar, 
a guitarist uh, that worked with Paul with yeah. um, Press to Play. He was mm-hmm. the first one. So that encouraged encouraged me a lot. And so I, I just uh, worked like crazy and, and uh, interviewed uh, in the end, uh, uh, I think it was 70, 70 musicians, uh, producers and something. So that was the uh, 2000. Wow. 12 was the the Italian edition, and then I started immediately working on uh, on a translation with um, with uh, different translators. It was not that easy to 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 translate that book because right. uh, the translation thing is always tricky. And uh, at the time, uh, I didn't have experience, so it suggested me someone. You know, it's not easy. I changed. I changed the. Uh, Three or four translations <clears throat> <laughs> over the project because I was not happy. <laughs> it's difficult wow. because you you need someone who who knows both languages and uh, who knows music. Yeah, because you have technical issues you're dealing with there. You know, that's a special kind of translating. Yeah, and so it took a long time. It took a long time to write this, but it was really a fantastic uh, thing for me. I enjoyed so much doing this thing. It was a fantastic experience, really. Your book actually got quoted in the Wings Wildlife book for the new archive set, I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, That's really yeah, cool. <laughs> it's cool. Uh, I must admit, it's, uh, for me, it's, I'm over the moon, you know, and uh, it's an incredible uh, achievement, and uh, I, I didn't know about it. I have uh, sent the book to, to the MPL staff, and just told them well just use it because i think it's uh, it's uh, it's very similar and you can find uh, useful information for your researchers so uh, so please do it and in the end they, they did it <laughs> so i got to thank uh, really all the mpl staff uh, and the and the writer of the essay that is um, rolling stone um, uh, writer david uh, Frickett. Yeah, and he did a very good job. I think that's yes, probably think, some of the best writing I've seen in these archive editions. Yes, it's yeah. It seems it seems they did uh, a really great uh, uh, job. Probably it was uh, well, partly it was probably help uh, help from by my book, and uh, and, and partly I think uh, the Abbey Road documentation was uh, was uh, in good uh, in good shape. So. They they had uh, some really some good material to work on. Yeah, I think uh, if I have to compare the the two new releases, I think the one life is probably it's got more details than the regular Speedway one. Mm-hmm. I think you have the same feeling that myself. <laughs> yeah, and so I really want to dive in on this whole double album thing because now I'm more confused than ever. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, it seems to me that the Red Rose Speedway Archive Edition presents a, a different picture of the whole thing than I had gotten from your book. Do you have any insight on that? Well, uh, I know that there was some misunderstanding. Um, or uh, for for years, we have uh, we have uh, thought that uh, there was only one uh, initial version of the double album. That was not the case, and we just discovered. Also, myself, I have discovered now that they 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 had uh, two different lineups for this mm-hmm. double, double album. Uh, 
so that's uh, that's a good thing of of the researchers that uh, uh, historical research never stops. So yes, so the 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 really interesting things of these archives is, is that they are adding more information, and uh, so that's uh, that's why the work on on McCartney's uh, uh, records is is never finished. So that's a, that's a new the new important information that we got. So mm-hmm. they they had the two two different lineups in in a, for for the songs of of the double album, and um, and that's and I was confused myself uh, at first when I when I read it, but uh, now the pictures seem uh, pictures seem uh, seems uh, clearer. In the end, I think. Uh, the double album was a good idea, but I don't know if uh, would have been a such a great uh, success if they have released as a double album. I don't know. Yeah, right. At the time, this is my opinion. At the time, uh, is interesting. It's very interesting anyway because uh, there are more rockers in this uh, in this double set, and so you can have uh, a feeling of uh, maybe Wings as a as a band and a, and a single LP is more centered on McCartney. It, it is centered on McCartney. And, but at the time, I think that the audience wanted uh, some really commercial McCartney. So I think mm-hmm. it was a wise decision to do this thing. That's my opinion. I another, don't know what you think about Another it. thing I, I noticed about the different accounts was that the archive edition makes it sound as if it was Paul's decision to cut it down to a single album, but I had always understood it to be EMI rejecting the double album. Do we have any clarification there? or is I think that they refused the album because probably the double album as a format wasn't that popular. You know, it's, it's always difficult to market a double album instead of a single, you know, prices. There were, I think, some recent cases of uh you know issues with the prices uh, the the double lp of uh, of lennon sometime in new york city was a failure and was not a failure because of was doubled but probably because the music was not that good or not well received by the audience so they got some uh, some insight about uh, a recent double album that was not a success and i think that emi wanted I don't know which was the reason, but to my sources, EMI wasn't convinced that uh, any other vocals except for Paul was good for the market. So they, they did I want see. only McCartney as a vocalist. That's the main reason I know for which they refused to double up. I found it interesting that in the new book, there's no mention... Maybe I missed it, but I didn't see any mention of EMI rejecting it. It was played as if Paul changed his mind, and it was his idea to make it a single album. But they could just be sugarcoating. Yeah, who knows? Like stories change over time. Yeah. People remember things differently. Oh, yeah, oh, I that, that's what I did. But you're remembering you remembering a story you told yourself, and then it's like a shell game of of just it's it's like copying a copy of a copy of a copy. Oh, this says it's a game of telephone. Yeah. yeah I see your point. And, uh, that's probably, I think the same as you, because, uh, 
young risk when you got this uh, re-releases, reissues, is that they are sweetening things and they are uh, rewriting some parts if they do not want to tell the, the real story. So who knows sure. exactly what happened. On the one side, uh, I think I had got to check, but I think that McCarthy at the time stated that EMI did not want a double album. Got but, it. you know, uh, could be could be also that uh, at some point he released to to the double album at the time. And uh, mm-hmm. and he said, well, I'm not convinced. So how can you can you go uh, to the other uh, guys in the band and say, no, 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 I don't want this album out. And, uh, and I think I, I, I will um, I will go on with my own songs. And for yours, let's see. It's not that easy, you know. So right. you can also use the you can also use the record company to to tell something not uh, I see not so nice you know <laughs> okay yeah that's not easy to to know now but there are other interesting things because when you see the release product you, you think that uh, you know everything was smooth and the process of selecting songs there are many many difficult things to do when uh, when you when you select uh, songs for an album and I. I think that even for my love, McCartney was, wasn't sure about uh, the fact that uh, it would have been a, a success. Uh, I have a piece by promoter, Apple promoter Pete Bennett at the time that, that told that uh, he was the one who has to convince McCartney to put it out as a single because he didn't want to, which is incredible mm. because you, you listen to the yeah. song and, and say, yes, this is a... This is a incredible song and uh it's a smashing single you know it's perfect yeah <laughs> okay yeah so and in the end he was not convinced and uh and bennett uh told the story and he said uh, no 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 let me promote it and um, it would be a number one and he was right but mccarthy was not convinced so wow you know it's not not uh that's that adds uh adds some more mystery to <laughs> To the story. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, because he's always really vigorously defended that song against critics. If you like McCartney, you could not dislike a song like Milo. I'm, I'm, this is my... I think that's uh, well put. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know... It's, Very well. It's, 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 it's true. It's true. McCartney can do really a number of different things like no one else. He, he can rock and he can do ballads and he's a master and doing all these different things probably for a wider audience is more recognized as a balladeer or, or they, they like probably more this mellow side and we got to consider that if, if you listen to Rebel Speedway in the release version it is very very mellow okay so mm-hmm. it's, it's an album almost ent- entirely done by by ballads, you know, there are, there's no such rockers except for a couple of spots. And at the time, it was a really good success as an album. In the, in the US, it was a good success and My Love certainly helped. So the audience wanted this kind of, uh, of things from him. And he, he understood, I think, this direction he has, he had to take. What do you think of Paul leaving off the verse lyrics of Night Out? 
Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, it's difficult to, to tell why. and It's really difficult. I don't know. <laughs> we have a theory, actually, that he's saving some of these Cold Cuts track for an actual Cold Cuts release. Because we've noticed that some of the Cold Cuts tracks, when they come out on the archives, aren't the Cold Cuts versions. Yeah, he, he got something in mind, I think. Uh, yeah, the first time he, he talked about uh, Cold Cuts was, uh, I think, in... 1974, and I think they planned uh, they planned something for 1974, mm-hmm. and then in the end uh, it was scrapped. I don't know which was the reason. Maybe it was connected to the Apple situation or something. But he, he had uh, he had something in mind with with all these songs because when you write all these songs, at some point you you realize that. Uh, there's uh, so much material left out, and so you got you got to do something. It's a shame that uh, the Cold Cast project uh, did not uh, come to to light at the time because I think it would have been a success. I think. Yeah. Back in Brazil, there lives a girl. Dreams of the future and a far, far better world. album have you done any research on egypt station or had any thoughts on it yes i started researching also on egypt station yes i I have uh, collected little pieces of information uh, here and there it's not uh, it's not easy with uh, recent uh, material uh, uh, i have uh, well you know it's i have you have to you know to to put together a lot of uh, uh, information from from here and there because uh, in the booklet there's basically nothing written. Then uh, there was a website uh, with some information on. So I'm I'm still searching for 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 things. I mean, to... yeah. Even with your book to help us out, we found that as we got into the last few albums, it got harder and harder to find you know good good information and deep information. Plus, no one has really processed this material, right? I mean, no one's really had a chance to listen to it for years and think it through, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I, I've noticed that uh, with the recent albums, there's uh, tons of uh, overdubs, uh, tons of uh, different studios uh, uh, used. Uh, so it's, uh, it's really hard to reconstruct the process of recording it seems it was uh, simpler <laughs> in the seventies, yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and now it seems uh, uh, now it seems uh, different. It's it's uh, very fragmented because uh, he's basically recording now between uh, 
one tour and, and another of this kind of thing. So it, it, it does not follow the same process as before because before it was more structured. That's a good so point. it was, uh, okay, let's record an album and then we go on tour and do the promotion and, 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 that's, and that was the pattern. Now the pattern is, is completely gone, obviously. And so he's more out uh, doing concerts because uh, he's aware that uh, his legacy is important and, uh, and, and he wants to, to be out as much as possible because he wants people to, to, to see him and to listen to the songs from his mouth <laughs> now. <laughs> so he, enjoyed, he enjoys being on stage. So the, the recording, it's, uh, it, it follows a different process, a different pattern. So it's difficult to track down things now. Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, on Egypt Station, yeah, I think, uh, well, it's surprising to see that uh, he's capable to, to do these kind of things at uh, 76. It's really, mm -hmm. I don't think no one ever did this kind of thing. I think it's a, it's a very good album if we consider this this aspect because uh, yes because it, it's really it's really not not that easy he's uh, he's really a master of uh, writing songs and uh, and producing pop songs it's re really really no one who who can do this kind of thing if we see this album this is my opinion obviously in the context of it, the whole career i would not put this in my first 10 but I think it makes sense anyway, because uh, the output of, uh, of a songwriter slows down a bit. Time passes. It's not easy. When you're young, you've got uh, different energy. And don't misunderstand me, McCartney has got, <laughs> is full of energy. This is a man yes. <laughs> who is full of energy. So he, he doesn't miss anything. But obviously, uh, you know, the vocals are... are are different now, you know, 76 years old is, uh, and is capable to do uh, incredible things. Obviously, if you listen to Maybe I'm Amazed from 1970, it's a, it's a different singer. And a different songwriter. Yes. A different songwriter too, yeah. After 50 years of songs, I think he, he admitted in, um, in one interview at the time of New if he was finding difficult to write songs. He stated this in an interview, which uh, I think is a honest uh, statement. Uh, it makes sense that uh, after 50 years, you perfectly know how to write a song. So that means that uh, even though you are not uh, inspired, you know how to do it. Okay? Hmm. So to find, find new inspiration... It's not that easy, and uh, you know, uh, chords, uh, notes, uh, melodies uh, are in your in your head. I don't know how many songs he have uh, written, but really many many songs. So it could be that uh, you are struggling a bit because you find a melody, and then at some point you say, mm, "This is similar to the other one." <laughs> but but I think it it, it is. It is normal. It's uh, it's something that uh, happens to to a lot of songwriters. And in the case of McCartney, the, the, this problem is not that um, evident. 
and and I think uh, it's a good album anyway. So we are very lucky to, mm-hmm. to have another another album from him. So I would love to see other things come out in the in the following uh, months or, or or years because I think the, the only the only thing I I would love more from him now is just you know release as much as you can because I'm sure that there are other projects that are very interesting that are worth to be released. One is is the guitar concerto that he that he wrote many years ago and he has recorded and finished with the classical guitarist Carlos Bonell. I know that they finished this project. And uh, through my interview with Bonell a couple well, five years ago, something like that, he told me that this project is uh, incredible. He spoke to me about this uh, guitar concerto and uh, and told me that melodies and arrangements are, are really uh, are outstanding. So that's one one example. So he's got tons of music to be released. So wait, let's wait and see. Wow. You know, one thing I always felt that I noticed in Paul's work from about 1990 on, he doesn't experiment as much, and the albums are kind of tasteful and consistent, but they don't have the adventurousness and the experimentation and the innovation that the work from the 70s and 80s had, as if he made a kind of a trade-off. But then you listen to Electric Arguments, and you realize, well, he is still experimenting, but he wants to make it separate. So you wonder what electric arguments type stuff he has stored up that he's no longer putting on his main albums the way he did in the 70s, you know? Yeah, I, I think you, you, you're touching an interesting point because uh, I see, um, I think that there are different McCartney's. So there is the studio one and the live one. And uh, we are talking about really two different artists, okay? Then there's... Mm-hmm. Uh, the experimental one, there's the, the one who uses uh, pseudonyms, and then there's uh, the you know, classic McCartney that does these albums, and he keeps an eye to his audience. So he knows perfectly what his audience expects from him. So he perfectly knows that uh, he's got to do something in that vein. And then when he, when he wants to experiment, he says, okay, let's do it like a fireman. He's got some worries about, uh, about uh, his image and his output and his legacy. So he likes to do these kind of things. He's, he's an interesting personality. <laughs> so he likes yeah. to do this, uh, this, these things and then keep, uh, keep things uh, separate. But I'm with you that uh, the, the 70s were really uh, an experimental decade because you find really interesting things or you know, even quirky um, kind of things uh, in, the, in, in his main albums and not right. in, the, in the side projects necessarily. So now it's, now it's different from, from the 90s on. Uh, he, he has turned uh, his mind to, to, to different things. And I know he's, he's right because he's very proud of, uh, of what we did uh, with the Beatles because it's, uh, it's an incredible story, incredible songs. So he's perfectly right to, 
to remind to everyone that he was the one who wrote Hey Jude or, 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 or other songs because he suffers a bit still these days the fact that uh, he cannot be uh, recognized uh, as much as he deserves for this contribution. I don't think that there's a, there's a risk in this sense because uh, McCartney is, is the greatest uh, songwriter ever. No one, no one can deny this. But I see, I see, I see his point, and probably I would do the same as him, and to try to to travel the world and say, okay, guys, I am, I am here for you. I I was part of this, and I'm still here. And so, you know, let, let's let's do this show concert all together. So it's a. That is a different artist from the studio one for from the solo one, which I like a lot. But we got to consider that uh, that uh, he is uh, uh, really, really probably too much. I think in some moments too much concerned about his legacy. But I mm. see, I see, I see why. I don't know if, what, what do you think, but I have read read uh, a couple of interviews quite recently. And he seems a little bit concerned about it. I mean, the upside is that he's releasing these amazing archive editions and he's finally putting all this. I mean, a lot of us have said for years that if he would just release everything from the 70s, it would do a lot to rehabilitate his image. You know, those of us who know what he was really doing and not just the albums and singles are pretty impressed. So he must care. I mean, that's the upside of it. But I think the downside, as you say, is that there's something very safe um, and kind of ordinary about some of his recent work. I also think his concerts are a bit, they've become a bit predictable, you know, like a Disney ride. And it would be nice to see him shake it up a bit. And so maybe, as you say, it's a bit of concern about his image at this point. I gave up to the, to the uh, idea that he's going to change uh, something in, uh, in, the, in his concert because he's not going to do it. He's not yeah. going to do it. Uh, and uh, I remember, I remember this thing that I, when I was young in my twenties, something I was w- with my friends. We we were writing down songs and we were imagining, you know, the perfect concert with uh, uh, only with solo material. But it, it would never happen. <laughs> so it never happened. And uh, <laughs> except for for the first uh, tours, obviously. But nowadays he's not going to do it. Uh, yeah. And with you, I've seen uh, McCartney concert uh, thirteen times. Okay, so far. Wow. And yes, it's it's an enjoyable show. On the other side, you you perfectly know what what to expect from him. So uh, when uh, when he's uh, doing these concerts with, with his audience, he wants to play. For the not for the hardcore fans, but for the man on the street, he's doing these kind of things. That's uh, that's he want to do, and we got to accept it. Uh, I know uh, I would have loved uh, him to to do something like a Monkberry Moonlight or, or the backseat of my car live, but now it's not. It's no more. <laughs> the time has passed, and I don't think. We are, we are going to... <laughs> yeah, I had this fantasy of him playing whole albums, like P. 
some people do that, you know, play all of Band on the Run. That would be a great, everybody would like to he, like to see that, I would think. But, and then you do your encore with your, with your Hey Jude or whatever. But yeah, you're right. It seems as if nothing like that's going to happen. No, I think the only, the only chance is that uh, someone pushes him in the corner and say, okay, let's do something for, for your really hardcore solo material fans and do a special concert only mm. with these songs and uh, select mm. uh, maybe the, the, the list or, or, or do a poll on your website and they choose a song for you and they choose the third song and you do a, a one concert like the Unplugged, something like that. And you do this for, for this kind of uh, audience. But it's not going to do even Band on the Run, which is the most popular post-Beatles album by, by, by Paul. But he's not going to do it. He's not going to yeah. do it. Uh, and I don't know if you have seen Paul live recently. It's been about four years. Four years, yes. My, my last one was in 2013, okay? But what I, what I have always noticed during all the concerts I've seen from him is that uh, there was one, one concert in 2011 when he, got in, uh, he was in Milan, my, my hometown. And at uh, some point, it, it, the start of the concert, well, I can't remember uh, really the, the exact order of the songs, but he plays much more of a solo material during the first part of the concert. And there was a, I think it was a kind of an embarrassing moment because he, he went uh, to play Junior's Farm. But believe me, no one reacted in the, in the, in the whole arena no one right no one that's too bad i love that song and then the atmosphere completely changes when he's going to to do the all the, the string of uh, of beatles um hits it completely changes the atmosphere of the concert so he's perfectly aware of this and he have uh, he has admitted even in one interview mm. i think it told something like uh uh, he, 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 he was referring exactly to, to a similar uh, thing. So he said, yes, I'm, I'm singing this song and, uh, and no one uh, uh, does nothing. Then you go with uh, Let It Be and, uh, and you got all the, the lights uh, from the audience. And, and the feedback is so important when, you are, when, you, when you're playing live. So if the feedback is, uh, is good, is uh, or is enthusiastic you are going to redo these things if the feedback is not good you're not going to do it so i see i see which is the main reason baby i'm amazed the way you love me all the time maybe i'm afraid of the way i love you maybe i'm amazed the way you
So, what's your favorite Paul McCartney album? Not to jump all over. I'm just sitting here thinking about the concerts, thinking about him playing. Like, is there an album or an era or a song or anything that you love the most? Because I know our answers already. Uh, my my favorite is Ram. Ram, I think it's uh, it is best. It's a masterpiece. It's um yeah. It's uh, it has a. Uh, uh, such an energy on one side and and the, on the other side it's uh, so carefully conceived and the songs are, are even complex and the uh, vocals are perfect vocals mm. are terrific terrific album so it, it's my yeah. my absolutely it's my favorite of all times that is the first one if you want a second one if I had to choose a song it's not from Ram but I think maybe my mate is my favorite. I think it's uh, it sums up uh, so many aspects of uh, McCartney uh, in terms of uh, his vocal range, in terms of his uh, even his uh, ability in writing good lyrics. That is a mm. really a masterpiece. When can we expect a new version of your book? Obviously, during these years, I have uh, searched a lot, a lot more, and so I have I have a lot of information more. So I got to organize this thing, and some point you see a nice project coming up, coming out. Promise. So it's it's difficult because uh, with McCartney. It's, uh, it's, it's really not that easy because you got to follow him and is uh, he, releasing new things all the time. So you, you are chasing him. <laughs> so yes, <laughs> <laughs> you got to say, okay, now let's let's stop for a bit, and then when you have uh, really something uh, interesting to add uh, with this kind of books, it's, it's kind of tricky because if you if you yeah. release an update each uh, every year. At some point, you gotta you gotta your audience being fed up because they they are you know <laughs> they are <laughs> buying the book again and again, and I don't want this to be to happen. So at some point, I'm working on a on a project which is nice, and uh, I'll let you know for sure. <laughs> you know, we get asked a lot this question: Are there other artists that you'd like to give this treatment? Yeah, I have another project. Obviously, let me say that it's not uh, so easy to have uh, this kind of knowledge about one artist and applying this to, I don't know, how many others. You understand me? That's right. It's not easy yeah. because uh, for a number of reasons, at some point you focus on, on, on someone because you got a special connection within me. But I have another project on uh, Peter Gabriel. So oh. I have... Uh, Cool. Uh, I have collected uh, information about uh, his songs. Fortunately, his uh, his output is not that huge <laughs> as <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of the opposite, right? 
Yeah, but me and uh, and a friend have collected uh, nice interviews with uh, with some of his uh, musicians, and so we are building this book. <laughs> and uh, right. I think we are going to release we are going to release it in English straight, not a, not in Italian. We are going to release it uh, straight in English because the market is bigger and for, for all these reasons. And I think we, we got uh, information never, never published anywhere. So, uh, so I think we are very keen to, to, to do this. Uh, obviously, the time uh, is not that much. Uh, it's not easy to, to work uh, on more than one project uh, at a time. Then I, I get to mention the last one. So the Peter Gabriel one is uh, is uh, we are working on it. I cannot say when it will be ready, but at some point it will be. <laughs> and the other thing is that I have uh, also completed a, a new book on the on the solo Beatles in the seventies. It was already published in Italian two years ago. So now we have worked hard with a guy uh, for the English version, which is perfect because it's mainly very well written so it was a great help so at some point uh, you can expect also this book on the solo on the solo builds in the 70s which is interesting I think I did a good researches on this and mm-hmm. uh, so that that will be the, the next uh, the next release wow those are both really exciting yes I think um I think we miss we miss now uh, uh, a book on, on the solo Beatles. I have stopped uh, with Lennon's death because uh, after you know uh, Bring Your Stars and George Harrison's output was not that uh, significant. Also, in in terms of uh, number of al- number of albums, and so I prefer to to stop uh, the book. So the book starts in. Uh, 9666 and goes to 1980 so it's interesting it's interesting there's uh, there's some something interesting also about uh, the the family way project that was strictly speaking it's not a a solo or McCartney album but it's got an appendix uh, dedicated to to this uh, to this project and i think it's nice because it's got a it even got a, um, Photos in and images, so it's uh, it's really nice. Also on the on the side of a layout, the layout is very nice. So I think you'd be pleased. Yeah, that sounds great. As far as I know, there aren't any really deep solo Beatles book. There is the Andrew Grant Jackson book, which he takes from a particular kind of angle. But someone going into the kind of detail that you tend to do, I don't think anyone's done that. No, yes, exactly. So that was something I, I was uh, I was very keen on doing, and in the end, uh, I must I just give you this little insight. It's a it's a two part book. So the first part is the narrative one. So it, it narrates all the events that happened and the releases from ninety sixty six to ninety eighty, and the second part is a. Uh, and album by album, single by single, you know, chronology with all the songs, all the stories behind the songs. So it's a huge book. Uh, 
But I think it's uh, at this point it's uh, it's interesting to to have it because uh, there, there's basically nothing, as you as you said, as you mentioned. So I think uh, the solo Beatles uh, releases as books were really uh, rich just after Lennon died, and then it stopped. So I think it was time to do to do something. So next year, book will That's be great. out. That's great. You're the man I would pick to do that book. Fantastic. Yeah, me too. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, yeah, man, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, without your resource, I just, you know, I really don't know where we would be sometimes. And then, you know, we we got to the end of new and, and we don't, I don't have any more of your research and we're like, what the hell are we going to do now? You know, so... <laughs> Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, well, really, I'm uh, I'm really pleased to 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 hear this uh, this word, and uh, it's really thrilling to to see that uh, people like you are, are doing the shows and relying on uh, on my book uh, as a source. It's it's really it's really thrilling. Uh, I wouldn't have uh, imagined to have this kind of uh, feedback, and it's and it's fantastic. So, Ryan, Chris. Thanks a lot, and uh, and I'll keep on listening to to your podcasts that are really really well done. Let me let me tell you that uh, this is serious work from you, and uh, they are very nice to hear. So the tone and the approach that you have is really really enjoyable. I like it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. All right, it's been a pleasure. Keep in touch, guys. Okay, we will. And keep us posted on those books, man. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Rich. Bye. Bye. Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady. Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast is powered by Pippa. I I, I, I I disagree I, with that. Yeah, it, but it, it, it. I don't hear it that way. What about you, Chris? Has that by file and stuffly here, clever with and the pr- yeah, yeah, and yeah. he does yeah. that in a way yeah. here that yeah. really adds a, a lot of rich get in your face with it. So, mm-hmm. which is touching and to tempt to. So it's a little harsh. I don't disagree with you. It is. I don't know. What then could he do? How much?